This is the City of God podcast, where Christ meets culture. Welcome to the City of God podcast. My name is Rob Pacienza. On this podcast, we discuss culture's biggest issues from the lens of God's infallible word. I'm joined by my co-host, John Rabe. And John, we have the opportunity to sit down with my good friend, Stephen Mansfield. He is an author. He is a thought leader, a coach, and uh, just an all-around incredible guy uh, that is a good friend of mine, a good friend of our ministry. And today, we talked about the topic of leadership. Yeah, this is a fantastic conversation. Now, Rob, you're, you're one of these guys. You know everybody. I'm the kind of person, I, I have, you could talk to cousins of mine, and they would say, John Rabe, don't don't know the guy. Never met him. Um, but you, you, you're connected with everybody. So how did you find Stephen Mansfield? How does he end up on your radar? Because this guy is, he's kind of a, a renaissance man. I mean, he, the, he covers the gamut of stuff. In, in, and as people will hear in this conversation, what, what connected you with Stephen Mansfield? Well, a few years ago, a good friend of mine, Laura Bishop, who's the uh, executive vice president of advancement at a local Christian college here in the area, Palm mm-hmm. Beach Atlantic University, uh, kind of uh, told me about him said he was visiting uh, PBA's campus on a regular basis, talking to their administration, their faculty, their student leaders. And I kind of forgot about him. And then a good friend of mine about a year ago said, hey, there's this great guy, Stephen Mansfield. He has a podcast for men. He talks about leadership. And he wrote a book called God in Guinness. Uh, I think the search for God in Guinness, which talks about Arthur Guinness, who was a, a, a a Christian and an entrepreneur, and this obviously is the, the Guinness beer, yeah, family. the Guinness, Guinness yeah. beer family, and so it just reminded me to reach back out to my friend at PBA and get connected with Stephen Mansfield, and the rest is history. We've uh, brought him on board to our Institute for Faith and Culture as a senior fellow. He's also an ambassador for the Center for Christian Statesmanship up in Washington D.C., and we've just hit it off. He is just an incredible man. He's as you will see on this podcast can talk about almost any topic. It's really true, and I'm excited for people to, to see and hear this. He first came on my radar in the early 2000s sometime. He had written a book called The Faith of George W. Bush. Yep. And I, I'm almost embarrassed to admit this, but when I first saw that, I thought it was just sort of a hack job. Oh, this is some sort of you know hagiographical thing to... To, to build up George W. Bush, and it's it's just, you know, it's a puff piece. Uh, but it, it wasn't. Instead, what I came to discover over time is that Stephen Mansfield has really done scholarly research into the, the, the faith commitments and the Christian faith commitments of a number of America's leaders, uh, including Abraham Lincoln and, and uh, many in our history, as we will talk about in this, this upcoming conversation. And the thing with him is, is that he not only has a, a, a scholar's knowledge, but he's an incredible communicator. He's just fun to he talk really to. He really is. And I'm not just saying this because he's a friend of mine, but all of his books on uh, America's great historic leaders yeah. are objective. Uh, they're, as you said, well-researched. Yes. In, in this day and age of disinformation, I so appreciate his attempt to not want to whitewash history. He says it for how it really happened. Uh, and he gives a truthful, accurate view of history and the biographies of these great history, historical leaders. Uh, we also talked about uh, not only the, the faith of uh, leaders like Lincoln and other faith lead, other historical leaders that he has great admiration for. We also talked about the uh, importance of Christians engaging culture yes. right now. 
Yeah, and the Christians engaging in culture and the the opposition that they find the the importance of the those structures like the family and so forth. He really is 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 comprehensive. Uh, a guy who wants to and yet is an optimist. Yep. You know, we're in difficult times and and he recognizes those from his historical perspective, but also has an optimism that we can make a difference. He cares about families. He cares about men and boys yeah. and 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 men being men. And he also cares about Christians living out their faith in the public yep. square. And, just, and even links it back to America's Christian founding. Exactly. And really gives a great perspective on what we mean by America's Christian founding. And as yeah. you said, we ended our conversation about talking about the importance of biblical manhood. So enough of us. And yes. let's turn to <laughs> our interview with Stephen Mansfield. Stephen, so good to have you on City of God podcast today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself, your upbringing, where you were raised, and how you embraced the call to be a author, pastor, thought leader, speaker. Well, a, a little bit of an unusual background, son of an army officer, military intelligence, uh, largely grew up in Germany and largely grew up in Berlin, Germany during the Cold War. So I remember what it was like to look from free Germany into East Germany and see the difference between the two. Came back to the States, big football jock in high school, turned that down because I uh, had a conversion between high school and college, went to a Christian school, pastored for a number of years, but always knew that I wanted to engage culture a little bit more directly. So earned a couple of master's degrees and a doctorate and began writing. And by God's grace, one of my first books was The Faith of George W. Bush, which repositioned me in, in the public eye, media, opportunities to do a lot of other things, start businesses and so on. So uh, since then, after pastoring for 20 years, I've been engaged in media, working internationally, have a consulting firm in D.C., and I continue to write more books than a human being ought to. Mm. <laughs> well, that was uh, when you first came on my radar was in the early 2000s with the, the George W. Bush book. And you have since then, you've you've become something of a chronicler of the faith of a number of our chief executives of the United States. How did that become a, a specific focus for you, a specific area of interest to, to probe the, the, the very different, in many senses, faith lives of some of our, our great leaders? I've always been fascinated with leadership, and I've always been fascinated with how faith shapes leadership, especially in the lives of the great. But as you know, there's a little bit of an anti-religious bias in a lot of scholarship mm -hmm. today, certainly in our universities. Um, and so you talk about Churchill. He was wasn't a church figure. He wasn't a religious leader. Therefore, you didn't talk about his faith. So I wrote a book that was about how faith influenced him while he did, quote unquote, secular leadership. And uh, it really hit well because people said, hey, this is, this is talking about faith in the quote unquote real world. Right. I did the same with Obama. I did the same with Bush. I did the same with Whitfield and, and Booker T. Washington and others. Um, so I developed a little bit of a brand. I didn't intend to, but I did. <laughs> where I was talking about the impact of faith on leaders who weren't known for religious leadership. And it really hit a trend because at that point, people were, we were just starting this a little bit of anti-church vibe in the culture, but people were still interested in God and faith and how faith informed leadership and great leaders. So it was a way to kind of have a dialogue about religion with the culture through the lives of these great ones. Stephen, you, you meet with people all around the world, uh, helping to coach them, consult them. Uh, one of the issues that we talk about on this podcast is the intersection of faith and politics mm -hmm. in particular. Uh, you've worked with politicians all around the nation uh, at the local, state, and federal level. You're constantly teaching them something, consulting them concerning something. But what are some of the things you've learned along the way 
particularly with working with politicians. You know, working with politicians, kings, prime ministers, prominent people, I'll tell you the one thing that is very interesting, even if they're not known for our, our you know, demonstrative faith, they all are willing to believe and do believe that they have been divinely positioned. I can talk to a person, a king maybe, who's known to be relatively secular, and I can say, you know, my faith teaches me that God positioned you here, mm. and they will agree. They know they did not get there just purely by politics. They did not get there just purely by heredity. Um, they got there through some spiritual process. The other thing is that even if they're, again, they're not that demonstrative about their faith, they almost always realize they're dealing with spiritual forces. Isn't, isn't that interesting? Even a secular king, prime minister, what have you, uh, is willing to talk to me about the fact that um, they're aware that invisible forces are at work in some way in what they do. We're not just dealing with politics, they will say. There's something mystical going on. So it really confirms, you know, Romans 13, it really confirms the biblical worldview that even a secular leader is operating within or being shaped by spiritual forces, and they have a sense of it, even if they're not willing to acknowledge it publicly. To me, that's very telling. And of course, in Romans 1, we understand that uh, the, the truth is known to all men, though we suppress it in unrighteousness. But there is this this perhaps weight of leadership that humbles all but the most deranged uh, who, yes. who uh, ascend to power. Uh, it, it seems to me that in, in America, there's this recent myth of, you know, a secular state uh, of a godless constitution and so forth. But uh, you're much more of a student of American history than I am. When we look at our leaders, that's that's really a myth, including uh, a very up until very recent history, even those who may not be considered evangelical Christians are far from faithless atheists, as, it, as some would portray it. Right. Again, it comes back to sort of the theme in my writing. Uh, you'll have a person who's not that much of a church person, mm -hmm. not that overtly Christian, but they know. They know that spiritual forces are at work. They know that God has positioned them. Um, even what we call today the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, people right. who don't click the, the certain boxes on a, on a form, they have a heart for God. Many of them are kind of closet Christians. They just don't <laughs> want to be overt Christians. And so I've I got to tell you, honestly, I've never worked with a leader, a prime minister, a king, a congressman, a senator, a president who didn't acknowledge the role of God in their positioning. Hmm. Never. And some of those had very secular reputations. And so, I, 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 you know, you, you quote a good scripture, Romans 1. It says they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. The image we ought to have is that it's as though you've captured a wild animal in a trash can and you're holding the lid down, keeping that thing there. <laughs> that's, that's good. You have to suppress this information. Mm. You have to suppress even uh, the knowledge of our faith in American history in order not to acknowledge it, not to recognize it, not to build on it. It's there. It's prominent. Even the most secular of leaders acknowledges it. And so you've got to be holding that wild animal in can yeah, why uh, you to keep it from being real. Uh, you mentioned our founding. I think it's, it's fascinating. You know, you, you often hear the debate uh, concerning the founding of our nation. Uh, was it founded as a Christian nation? Were all the founders Christians? I think the one thing that is not opinion, it's fact, is that the Judeo-Christian worldview mm -hmm. was the great influence right. on our founding, uh, had the greatest impact on our founders, whether they were genuine no believers believers or not. Right. Uh, would you agree with that? There's just absolutely no question about it. And often it's how you phrase the question. Were we founded as a Christian nation? Well, that sends people looking for official language. This was founded. Well, no, but 
Leopold von Reich, one of the great historians, said that 90% of the people in the American colonial period were Calvinist, for heaven's sakes. Um, and there's no question, especially after the Great Awakening, that uh, the Christian faith profoundly permeated the society. So if you ask the right question, what was the dominant force culturally in the colonial period? No question, Judeo-Christianity. Yeah. What would you say, and, and this is very wide-ranging, I recognize, but... What have we lost by by losing that understanding? We've lost the understanding that the founders found, were, were operating in that 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 Judeo Christian perspective. That was the atmosphere that they breathed. Granted, there were Enlightenment aspects of it that were filtering in, but but it, nobody questioned the idea that there was a governing God over the affairs of men and and that He cared about these things. Um, what? have we lost in the intervening years as we've become more and more secular and rejected the idea that God really is, in, in the words of uh, uh, Ben Franklin, that God really is real, that he uh, governs in the affairs of men? I believe as a Christian that we've lost an actual covenantal relationship with God as a nation. I think that's critical. Mm. Uh, I'm, I'm not saying God's not involved in American history, that he, does, that he doesn't honor the age-old covenants when we as Christians renew them by faith, uh, but I think we've lost that. The One of the things the founding fathers would have said, though, is that by losing Christianity as a dominant force in our society, we have lost Christian self-government of the individual. Mm. They talked a lot about the government of the individual. They didn't believe, and nor should we, uh, that the, 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 the government, the federal government, the state governments could restrain human nature enough to do it externally. It had to be a self-government. It had to be a system of character, inner transformation that caused a person to govern themselves uh, that made a society possible. Many of the founding fathers talked about this. So we see in a society now that where we don't have that Christian self-government, self-restraint going on in the individual heart, um, that government can't restrain all the sinful tendencies of human beings and, and all of the drives that are out there and all of the upheaval. So if the founding fathers, I think, reappeared in the studio right now, that's one of the things they would talk about. We don't see people mm -hmm. governing themselves according to an ethical code, um, empowered to restrain their lesser drives for the good of God and for the good of society. I mean, speaking of the Judeo-Christian influence on our founding, uh, one of the things that you do, it's brilliant, is a faith tour of D.C. Why, why do you do that? And explain a little bit about what a person would experience on a faith tour with Stephen Mansfield. Well, I know a lot of people visit D.C. You know, during the summer with 50,000 uh, elementary school kids trailing them, and they have a miserable time, some of them. I genuinely <laughs> love D.C., and one of the reasons is that D.C. was built as a capital. That's unique in the world. Very few capitals were built as capitals. And the buildings, the architecture, preach. Um, scriptures are emblazoned in the buildings, blessings that presidents uh, valued are built in the mantelpieces, carved into the buildings. So uh, I take people first to St. John's, the Church of the Presidents across the Lafayette Park from the White House. This is where Churchill and Roosevelt would have prayed together. This is where every president since John Adams has been there to pray. Most presidential inauguration services have happened there. Um, only, only Nixon since the building was built. Uh, chose not to have it there because he was Quaker. And um, they, they, we, we go there and people are moved. They, Lincoln's they, Pew. 
Yes, Lincoln's yeah. pew is right there. Lincoln, one of my heroes. Uh, Lincoln used to sneak across Lafayette Park and go in the basement and listen to the Wednesday night prayer meetings through a, just the pastor's door slightly cracked open, mm. and he was encouraged by what people were praying. So it, it's truly the, the, play, the place of the presidents, the Church of the Presidents. We then go see the faith themes at the Lincoln Memorial, at the Jefferson Memorial. We go up to the Capitol. We go to the Library of Congress. There's a statue of Moses, a lawgiver. You know, Clearly, um, his law is a foundation of American jurisprudence. And so uh, by the end of the day, and I always do something you know, a little bit, I joke, and I'm going to manipulate you emotionally. I'll take them up at sunset to Arlington. <laughs> I'll read the words and people will weep, you know, mm -hmm. but I want to get them, I want to capture their hearts for American history and for the beauty of it and the power of faith in I, that I history. I love that line, DC preaches the gospel. It does. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I think that's what's so important about the work that you're doing. I mean, we, we call DC the swamp. Yeah, unfortunately, and I think that as the people of God, uh, we we're not about draining the swamp. We're about reclaiming it for what it ultimately exactly. was designed for, for exactly. the glory of God. Amen. That's right. Yeah. As we look to that as well, and and as we, you know, Rob, of course, has such a burden for Christian leadership. You, Stephen, have a burden for Christian leadership, uh, and recognizing that not all of these people were, were church-going, practicing Christians the way we might desire them to be. As we look back through history, let's talk a little bit, you know, your, with your interest in history and, uh, you know, your, your, your education in American history and so forth. Who are some of those who stand out? Who are these the, the great, great leaders in American history, including maybe some here and there that we overlook? I think we know George Washington, a massive, important leader and a man that uh, we're recapturing the understanding with a real Christian base to him. But who are some of those great leaders in, in American history, including the ones that we might overlook? Well, one of my favorites is one that's very much overlooked. In fact, I wrote a book about him, and I entitled it Forgotten Founding Father. And I could just let that hang in the air. Yeah, we have to who guess who it is. Be? But George Whitfield. Mm -hmm. Now, George Whitfield was an Anglican priest who preached uh, seven tours through the American colonies and led a revival now called the Great Awakening. And historians say there's actually a thesis, a historian's thesis called the Heimert thesis, that if George Whitfield had not led those revivals up from Maine to Georgia, um, the American colonies would not have been unified prior to the American Revolution. It's very possible would not have won the American Revolution. I've heard it said that he was really the first American celebrity that, uh, although oh, no he wasn't question. American, he was British, but he was the first celebrity in the States. No question. It, it, one of the, the stats colonies. is that there really wasn't a family of the American colonies um, who didn't have somebody converted under his ministry. Mm. He was the first intercolonial event, they call it. Okay. If you'd lived in the, in the original 13 colonies, you would have been more connected to London mm. than you would have been to the other colonies. But him preaching, again, from Georgia to Maine and the huge crowd even Benjamin Franklin described it in his autobiography, massive crowds. He figured that 100,000 people could hear Whitfield open air. That's how, that's how much they, they he projected. They didn't have amplification no, or electricity. No, 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 no. And so, uh, but what's interesting is not only did he unify the colonies in faith, not only did he uh, bring a, a sense of destiny for the colonies, because he would talk about you're here for a purpose, you have a calling, but also he, as, as a British citizen, he warned the colonists about Parliament's attempt to encroach on their liberties. Uh -huh. He would weep and he would say, your liberties are being stolen. Be aware, be aware of conspiracies in London. And so he unified them. He called out their destiny. He warned them. And that led to 
them being prepared for the American Revolution. So a lot of historians, especially Christian historians, don't believe we would have won or been prepared for the American Revolution had it not been for this Anglican priest, who, by the way, is buried in the American colonies. Warren. And one of my favorite Whitfield stories, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, I mean, people were, he was so popular before he did the open air preaching, people were climbing on top of the church roof, falling yeah. off the roof just yes. to oh, hear my. him preach. Yes. And the reason is, correct me if I'm wrong, historian, it was because it was illegal to preach outside, but he disobeyed the... He disobeyed and did it, he disobeyed and did it anyway because churches yeah. wouldn't hold him. And by the way, yeah. some churches were biased against him. Uh, he was pretty amazing. One of the greatest actors of that day in London said he would give all he owned if he could just say the word Mesopotamia the way that George Whitfield did. Wow. And that's, that'll give you some <laughs> sense of the power of his speaking. Um, but but I, think, I think there's a case to be made. No George Whitfield, no victory in the American Revolution. So obviously... I go with George Whitfield. And Benjamin Franklin, of course, who is considered maybe uh, one of the more irreligious right. founding fathers, was still in such uh, was was in such thrall with uh, Whitfield that he paid to have his sermons published. He yes. was really more responsible than anybody for sort of publishing Whitfield in the, at the colonies as well. He right? was. And if you get a chance to read the autobiography of Benjamin Franklin, you'll see that he actually, as a scientist, walked the perimeter of how far Whitfield's voice could be heard. And he wanted to partner with Whitfield in planting colonies. He thought that Benjamin Franklin's scientific knowledge, political genius, and Whitfield's emphasis on character and strength of leadership would create whole new colonies in the Americas. And he actually he actually proposed that to Whitfield. So it's an unusual partnership, but I think it shows the power of Whitfield in our history. Stephen, in addition to Whitfield, I know another hero of yours is President Abraham Lincoln. Yes. You actually wrote this book which is phenomenal. Thank uh, you. Cannot recommend it enough. Lincoln's battle with God, a president's struggle with faith and what it meant for America. Why is Lincoln so important to you and what led you to write this book? I, I love Lincoln for all the reasons we all do. I, I love the, that he's the great emancipator. I, I, I love his, his work in the American, I mean, his Civil War, all of the things that we love. And of course, he's the great storyteller and he's, you know, got the, got the rise from, the, from poverty and all that kind of thing. I wrote the book, though, because of the story of his faith. Lincoln was born to some very religious, revivalistic, frontier kinds of Christians. It turned him off. He became, in his, in his young manhood, uh, the village atheist. He was known for walking through the streets of Salem and Springfield, carrying a Bible just to argue about it. He once <laughs> wrote a book called Infidelity, and his friends who knew he had a uh, political, you know, political career in the future took it and burned it. Uh, so that so that it wouldn't be published because they knew it would ruin his career. But eventually, largely through the work of Presbyterian pastors during the deaths of children, Lincoln suffered horrible deaths mm -hmm. and had uh, death of his mother, death of his sister, death, death of relatives, death of his first love. Uh, he had horrible depression as a result. So when one of his sons died, um, he was just distraught. And a Presbyterian uh, minister, a combination of Billy Graham and you know Daniel Boone, uh, stepped in and began to minister to him and began to slowly draw him back to faith. That gives us the Lincoln of the White House years, who kept a Bible on his desk, and also the Lincoln of the Second Inaugural Address, which is like the great American political sermon um, there on the right side of Lincoln as you uh, go to the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. So I wanted to tell a story of faith that often wasn't told. Either we get from historians a secular Lincoln, 
or we get from historians, an overly religious Lincoln. He was he was going to be, you know, he was dedicated to Christianity. He was going to be baptized the next week after his death and so on. But it's a bit more subtle. And the beauty is in his progress towards God mm -hmm. and how he finally reconciles with providence and the Civil War and what have you. I just think it's a very nuanced and beautiful story. And so that's why I wrote it. Well, I'm not just saying this. There's no book like it on Lincoln. Thank and you. Uh, really can't recommend it enough. Lincoln's Battle with God. A president's struggle with faith and what it meant for America. Let's switch gears. We've talked about politics. We've talked about leadership in general. Another area that you've devoted your career to is working with men and talking about what it means to embrace biblical manhood. Yes. Why is biblical manhood so important for a thriving society? Well, to put it bluntly and without any bias against women, biblical manhood is essential in a society because it guarantees all the nobility of a society. Um, I'm a, I, I, I bother some Christians with this phrase, but I'm as much of a feminist as the Bible allows me to be. In other words, I'm as much <laughs> pro-woman as, as I can possibly be and want them to ascend and break glass ceilings and do everything they're called to do. But in a society, men, when they're walking out their calling, they are the guarantors of the destiny of children and women. Uh, I like uh, my summary of Ephesians 5 and the role of a man in the life of a woman is that men are meant to be the guardian coaches. They stand guard. Uh, they model things. They call out destiny. They protect. And not just in a, a martial sense, but in the sense of uh, spiritually and emotionally and psychologically protecting. So uh, you really can't have a noble society. You really can't have a strong society unless you have noble manhood. Men who know who they are, know their calling, know why they have gifts. Because if you don't have that sense of God's design for manhood, you'll have men using their strengths for ill. Mm. Uh, that's why we, you know, I, I believe that we, since we don't have noble manhood in some parts of our country, we end up having gangs. They, they know they've got strengths. They know they've got abilities. They'll use it to enhance themselves if they aren't taught another model for manhood, which is to use their strengths for the glory of God and the good of society. So uh, I think uh, that one of the keys to renewal in our society is that we call men to renew as the righteous, godly, noble men they're meant to be. Mm -hmm. One of your books on this topic, and, and correct me if I get the title wrong, but it was Mansfield's Book for Manly Men. Mansfield's Book of Manly Men. Of Man, Manly Men, yeah. Sure. And, and so uh, this is this is something that you've put an emphasis on, and, and obviously there's a little bit of humor with that sure. as well. But, and marketing. Come and on. marketing, which is always <laughs> smart as well, right. Uh, but it, it does seem that there's... There's an appetite, you know. You know, you have almost a, sort of a counter reaction. You have this this sort of feminized culture that has turned manhood has made manhood an enemy. Yes, and, and certainly manhood has characteristic sins, as uh, sure. femalehood has. Uh, it, it, characteristic sins but uh, you 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 have the situation where well now it's toxic manhood and and things that are traditionally manly are to be suspect then you sort of have this counter reaction to that which can also be harmful we're, we're seeing you mentioned the gangs being one aspect of it but even in sort of uh conservative even bible leaning uh, circles it seems like there's there are reactions to that that are not entirely healthy the, and that the the solution to that is to get the real thing again yes there's no question about it uh, i i believe that we're living at a time when we've seen a horrible decline in manhood um and, and by the way i am i take the the phrase toxic manhood not on the way 
way that it's handed to us. But uh, the word toxic comes from the Latin word toxicum, and it referred to the poison that was put on the end of arrows mm. when they were fired into enemies. Men who aren't principled men, noble men, godly men, uh, with a righteous restoration of what they're meant to be, will be given to toxic masculinity in the sense that they're poisoning the next generation. They're poisoning their wives. They're poisoning mm -hmm. society. We see it. We mm -hmm. see it uh, going on in our society. Um, but I'll tell you what, in the same way that earlier I said that almost every statesman I've ever worked with acknowledged the hand of God in their rise, almost every man I've ever talked to, whether they <laughs> confessed to any kind of religious life or not, um, realized there was some higher purpose for the, them being men, and they weren't fulfilling it. Or, or they were trying to fulfill it. And so uh, I've seen men who don't acknowledge God at all weep when I talk about the fact that God made you a man and you're called to live it out to his glory. And they start crying because they have a sense of that, but nobody had ever put the crosshair, so to speak, right between their eyes. And so men know that they're living beneath what they're made for, if indeed they are. And it's, it, I find it to be a pretty easy thing to call them uh, to a passionate uh, pursuit of noble manhood with a band of brothers around them. Most men are hungry for that. Part of the attack on on manhood in our society, in our culture, uh, we see the symptoms or the result is absentee fathers, yes. uh, fatherlessness in our nation and in our society. Um, why, why is the role of a father in particular? You just talked about the importance of the man, biblical manhood, right. but talk a little bit about the father in particular and his role in society and his family. This fatherlessness is just a plague in our society. Where I live half the year in D.C., 73% of African-American families are led by a woman without a man present. Mm -hmm. Nationwide, it's 50%. And by the way, in white society, amongst whites, it's only 16%. I'm not, I'm not being proud of whites because we got our crisis too. Um, but the, the bottom line is that fatherlessness is a plague. And by the way, I have a half a dozen African-Americans in my family, and we talk about this all the time. The issue is that if there's not a man in the home, then you don't have that magnetic pull on the next generation. Men, righteous men, strong men, make daughters strong and confident and, and, and with standards and, and self-respect. Um, call out the young men to be noble men. Call out that sense of destiny. Honor the mother. Model that for the next generation. Live strong, noble lives in the society. So it's not just a matter of modeling. It's an actually tr actual transforming kind of role that a man uh, walks out. And when that's not there, I mean, God bless the moms and the grandmoms that have done it on their own, but they're not meant to do it alone. It's not the way God designed it. So we need a renewal of, of, the, of the father and uh, the African-American community that I care so much about. I go to a church in D.C. It's about 4,000 largely African-Americans, and we talk about this all the time. And uh, a lot of the pastors and leaders are trying to model this and model the change, but we need a renewal of fathering in our generation. And yet we have subsidized fatherlessness. We have demonized, sure. in, in many cases, masculinity and fatherhood. And, and so we're almost purposely inflicting damage on the institution of the family. The question that it raises in my mind is why? Is it just ignorance? It seems that there are many who are attacking the family who are not at all ignorant about it, who recognize and, and have that as their goal. Why, why would that be happening? Because any agenda that's contrary to the gospel, contrary to traditional values, call yep. it what you want, yep. contrary to the Judeo-Christian worldview, um, is going to oppose 
the family. The family's the bulwark. The family's the first church, the first mm. school, the first everything, uh, the first economic unit. And a traditional family, let's call it a biblical family, um, is going to be a stronghold against the bombardment mm. from secular society. So whatever you are, if you're a communist, if you're a radical LGBTQ, if you are whatever, you're going to realize eventually the greatest opposition you deal with is the result of the family. And so the family gets targeted. That's what's going on. Obviously, uh, government has a lot to do with that. Um, and I, But I'll tell you what, ha having a little bit more experience with the African-American community than mm -hmm. most whites, frankly, most whites of my age, certainly, um, you want to talk to a mad black woman. Uh, talk to a woman who's come to understand that the government early in her life was paying her to destroy her children, mm. paying her to remove a father from the home, by giving incentives for a, a damaged kind of uh, existence. That, passing that on to the next generation. I've been in those meetings. I've been there with my church mates, my female church mates, uh, and fellow congregation members. Uh, the African-American community is waking up to that, as they are, by the way, to abortion as an anti-black thing, um, given Margaret Sanger's writings and works. And um, th there, there is a counterinsurgency coming from, the, from largely African-American women who are realizing the conspiracy against them in this very area. Mm. That's awesome. Stephen, we have the privilege to uh, have you on our team as a senior fellow for the Institute for Faith and Culture, which is an initiative of Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church, and a senior fellow for the Center for Christian Statesmanship up in uh, Washington, D.C. And so just uh, really excited to be able to Thank partner you. with you on those two endeavors. But thinking about the Institute for Faith and Culture and the Center for Christian Statesmanship, whether it's Christians engaging in the public square or Christians engaging in the marketplace or whatever sphere of influence that God has called them to, why is faithful Christian cultural engagement so important, particularly right now? Well, for a number of reasons, and, and, and let me just remove it from the right now aspect. It's what we were commanded to do. The Great Commission was not just an evangelism, convert people to Jesus commission. It was disciple people groups. That's If we break out the Greek, and I won't get into it now, it literally wasn't to go, dis, go make disciples in the nations. It was go disciple people of common characteristics. So every public school teacher, every, every politician, every uh, shopkeeper. Um, and so this was the commission. This is at the heart of the gospel. If we're not doing that, we're not doing the heart of the gospel. But the other thing is, uh, I, I love Colossians chapter 1. It says that all things were created for him and by him. So everything only has its purpose, only fulfills its purpose uh, when, it, when it is living for Jesus, functioning for him uh, and functioning his way. So we're always talking about how Washington is broken or the state capital is broken or government is broken. And the reason is it was designed to be led by people who were principled, who were people of character, people who were serving, people who were living in the power and the understanding of God's purposes. And when it's not done that way, it's going to be broken. So we need a restoration of Christian statesmanship and, and, and more specifically cultural engagement because society is sick because we retreated, because we didn't get out there, because we... Uh, kind of a pietism, I'm sure your audience is familiar with this term, uh, kind of being about the internals of the faith, you know, prayer and inside the four walls of the church, great for all of it, but eventually we're supposed to burst out there on the streets and proclaim the gospel and help people understand what they were made for. And without that, we have a society that's lost. So I think that's what's happening. And by the way, thank you for your kind words. I'm very excited to be part of what's going on here. 
the culture itself has certainly encouraged that retreat on our part. And, and so you get this idea again that, uh, well, that's uh, you, you take your faith into the public square. You're a bunch of Christian nationalists. You're a bunch of, uh, uh, you know, you're, you're, you want a theocracy and so forth. Uh, of course, all of those are, are red herring arguments. But it is important for Christians to understand that the founders gave us a First Amendment that guaranteed the freedom of religion. That religious liberty is often in character characterized as the first right. Mm -hmm. Why was that so important to the founders as they laid down those documents? It's a great question. We have to understand that the founding fathers were breaking from an England where the church, the Church of England, had been forced upon them. Uh, there really was a religious oppression going on against colonies that were Presbyterian or Catholic or Baptist-oriented, Church of England in some cases. And during the American Revolution, a lot of people don't know this, but when uh, the, the British targeted pastors, targeted colonial churches, they would often kill the pastors. They often turned churches either into riding stables or houses of prostitution. Mm. They would burn colonial Bibles, burn copies of Watts hymnals, etc. So there was a specific, it was, some people at the time called it a holy war uh, coming out of the language used during the Crusades. And there's no question that was the case. So by the time they got around to framing their constitution, uh, they recognized that religious oppression brought oppression of every other kind. And so they obviously wanted to guarantee that right first. There's a reason that it's in the First Amendment. Right. <laughs> Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. They were quick to say, we don't want the federal government involved in religion. We want to leave that to the states where there's better local sensitivity to mores and so right. on. Um, but we definitely want to encourage faith in general, which, of course, Congress did. So it was essential because it was the key to all other liberties and all other pursuits in society. So Christians should not be cowed by the argument, oh, no, no, that's the state. That's supposed to be secular. You need to keep your faith behind the four walls of yeah, the church. The, the founding fathers never envisioned a secular state. Uh, and by the way, going on at the same time that our nation was becoming a nation was the French Revolution, which was, was secular, an attempt yeah. at the secular. And, you know, it was murderous. And a prostitute was put on the high altar at Notre Dame. And it was just perverse and sick. And the founding fathers wrote about this. Some of the, some of the British political theorists wrote about this. This. And, and they, that was the last thing they wanted. They'd point at the French and they'd scowl and say, that's not who we are. So the idea that our founding fathers wanted a secular society is just silly. And of course, it's meant to back away people like us right. who are trying to be faithful Christians in a, in a difficult age. Stephen, one final question for you. We tend to, as Christians, get bogged down in all the negatives. There's certainly a lot of negatives out there right <laughs> now. But, but give our audience some hope. What is the hope for America right now? You know, because I live in D.C. and kind of known for that, a lot of people will ask me, you know, what you've just asked, is there any hope? And I always say this, God is always doing more than you know. So there are a lot of practical things I could say. For example, statistically, more people will be born again in the next 24 hours than have been born again during any 24-hour period, uh, period since Jesus came out of the tomb. Mm. I can throw stats like that at you. Uh, we may be in some question about Christianity in Europe and maybe the U.S., but not in Africa, not in China, not in Latin America, where the gospel is exploding. So worldwide, there are tremendous things happening. But 
Uh, you know, a lot of people get tend to get their knowledge about the progress of the kingdom by watching Fox or CNN or MSNBC. And I say, look, I have watched two people beat the tar out of each other on a cable scream fest. And then I've been maybe helping to lead some kind of a prayer thing or a little chapel service and seen those same two people from opposite sides of the aisle holding hands and praying, kneeling at an altar the next day. Mm. Um, I've watched commentators go after each other and go to dinner afterwards and talk about how close they are. Yeah, I'll be praying for you. So I'm not trying to indicate that everybody's a perfect Christian in D.C., but what you see on cable news is a little bit of theater. It's meant to radicalize what we might call Walmart America, but the progress of the gospel, the influence of the gospel uh, is, is profound, and a lot of what radicalizes us is a little bit of theater. I've actually been on the, some of these shows, Hannity and what have you, and uh, two people will go at each other. You think they're going to kill each other in the green room, and it's like, hey, let's go eat. Great. <laughs> wow. We get over there for dinner, and the guy goes, let me pray, man. Let's pray a blessing on my friend, and you know, may, may his family be strong. And I'm going, you guys almost murdered each right. other on television. a little television. bit of a pro-wrestling pro so, vibe. Yeah, a little, a little, bit, little yeah. bit of performance. So are there challenges? Yes. But God is always doing more than you know, mm. and great things are happening. It's great hope. Uh, Stephen, thank you for your commitment to living out your faith in not only private but in public. But in addition to that, thank you for the thousands of people that you are impacting uh, to bring the mind of Christ uh, into every cultural sphere uh, for the kingdom. Grateful to call you friend, grateful that you're on our team, and uh, just uh, really grateful for your leadership in this cultural moment. Well, you're very kind, and it's an honor, and let's go do great things together. Awesome. I want to thank you for listening to this episode of the City of God podcast made in partnership with the Institute for Faith and Culture. You can listen to all of our podcasts at our website, cityofgodpodcast.com. Also, you can listen to our podcast at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. And make sure you watch the video version on our YouTube page. Please share this podcast with family, friends, or anybody that might be interested in navigating these cultural issues from the lens of God's infallible word. Thank you once again for listening to the City of God podcast, and God bless you.